0: This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission
1: at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Oklahoma's new top prosecutor is calling for a delay in executions. Attorney General Gettner Drummond filed a motion with the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals requesting a 60 day extension for the next seven. Neva Drummond appears to be going against the will of his predecessor and the governor. So why is he making this request?
2: Well, I think, first of all, I mean, he made it very clear by starting out and attending the execution, uh, the recent execution, went down there, talked about um, uh, how the folks uh, did an incredible job uh, there at the Department of Corrections, the professionalism, the fact that uh, uh, that they, they did it in a way that... Uh, uh showed that they were dedicated public servants uh, showed that they also took the task with uh, you know with uh, great seriousness and the gravity of, of what they were carrying out and so i think that in this instance the attorney general i mean his point was that oklahoma you know has had four executions over uh, nearly five months and 21 executions are still pending and his point is that under the current pace Uh, it's really unsustainable from his point of view and that it is unduly burdening uh, the personnel at the Department of Corrections to be able to carry out these executions. So we'll see what the um, uh, Court of Criminal Appeals does with this motion. Um, uh, Certainly at this point it's in their hands and they could go either direction on the request but I think he's laid out a case. I thought it was interesting too that um, that the Attorney General visited with family members of the victims of all of these uh, inmates that uh, are specified in the in the um, uh, filed motion and explained to him, explained to the families, uh, the reason for this particular request. So I think he covered all the bases very well in a very professional manner. And now we'll see what the Court of Criminal Appeals decides to do. Right.
0: Well, Neva, I think that it would be surprising if the Court of Criminal Appeals doesn't give some deference to the Attorney General's motion here. Uh, He has laid out a, a very reasonable uh, case for extending these execution dates out 60 days. Uh, You know, one of my good friends, uh, somebody I've been close with over the years, uh, Justin Jones, former director of the Department of Corrections, served under Governor Henry and then under Governor Fallon. He and I have visited many times about the emotional and logistical toll that it takes on DOC personnel uh, to be able to perform an execution in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, We can talk all day long about how Uh, the state of Oklahoma has botched executions, how we can't seem to get it right, how we don't have a reliable source of drugs, how there's a lack of transparency in the system. Um, But at the end of the day, uh, whether you are for the death penalty or against the death penalty or have questions about Oklahoma's system of of capital punishment, at the end of the day, you do have individuals, human beings that have to perform this very grave task on behalf of the Oklahoma people. Uh, And you know, I think that that is that is a very worthy consideration. I would add to that um, just the the psychological toll that it takes on uh, the the other individuals on death row. Uh, you know, I, you know, we have to take into account their you know their psychological well-being as well. I mean, we have to make sure that what we're doing doesn't amount to cruel and unusual punishment by rushing these executions through. Um, that we're not doing something that delays the ability of their attorneys. I think that having that extra 60 days, you know. We, we know in Oklahoma that at some point we have executed innocent people. I mean, we just know it. it, it statistically, it has had to have happened. Uh, If that extra 60 days gives criminal defense lawyers that are representing these individuals a more chance to raise a potential question, uh, find new evidence, whatever that is. I mean, they're out there working zealously on behalf of their clients to have another 60 days. I think that that's good for them. And I think it's good for the justice system to be able to slow this down. We shouldn't move with speed whenever we're with unnecessary speed when we're talking about uh, the exercise of the state's uh, most awesome power. And that's the power to take the life of one of its people.
1: Last week, we talked about Governor Stitt replacing four members of the State Board of Education, but he also terminated four members of the Veterans Commission. The removals include Chairman Jerry Ball, who was a vocal supporter of Veterans Affairs Executive Joel Kinsel. The governor has tried to get rid of Kinsel since he ran against it in last year's primary. Ryan, some are questioning the legality of Stitt's move. Well,
0: you know, let's, uh, the 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 uh questioning of the legality of the governor's move was something that a oklahoma county district court looked at um you know it was raised by one of these veterans organizations veterans organizations uh veterans of foreign wars uh, veterans of foreign wars uh, vfw american legion among others they are the ones that suggest these names to the governor uh, and the governor has to select among the names that are submitted by those organizations that's that's the law These organizations, uh, several of them have contended that individuals that have been selected by the governor to serve on the commission were never put in front uh, of them. They didn't come from any list that they gave the governor. They were never consulted by it. Uh, Existing members of the commission that have been ousted said that they found out by reading it in the newspaper. Uh, And so there is a legitimate question of whether or not the process required by law was followed by the governor's administration in selecting these new members of the commission. I also want to say that uh, it's it's possible to at once say that the folks that were removed should not have been removed or maybe were removed without uh following the lawful procedures but at the same time you know the folks that are coming on i don't doubt their their ability and and uh and thank them for their service uh as well i mean so we we this isn't necessarily. I, I wouldn't say that any of these organizations challenging uh, these uh, this process are necessarily challenging the credentials of the individuals that the governors put on uh, at all. And and neither am I. But there is a process, and it should be followed. The interesting deal is that that court, whenever they first heard this challenge, said. You can't bring this challenge. You don't have standing. You're not the right person to bring this challenge. Uh, I've run into that, uh, as a lawyer myself, bringing cases, uh, once against a sitting Supreme court justice, and then against a sitting, uh, Oklahoma, uh, corporation commissioner. And the courts have said, it doesn't matter what your arguments are. It doesn't matter what your legal authority is. You can't do this. It's gotta be a district attorney. It's gotta be the attorney general, or it's gotta be somebody that was, uh, otherwise up for that same position. And it's this very, it's this arcane rule in Oklahoma standing law uh, that limits that. Well, when John O'Connor was attorney general, there was no question that the AG wasn't going to bring this. DAs rarely intervene in these things because they are state issues. But uh, Attorney General John O'Connor was never gonna do that. We have a new attorney general now. Mm -hmm. And I think that over the coming weeks, it will be very interesting to see whether or not uh, Attorney General Gettner Drummond uses that authority offered to him by law Uh, to put in front of a court a question of whether or not this process was followed.
1: Neva.
2: Well you know uh, over the past uh, 18 months the governor has now replaced every single member of this board all nine members and I think when you take a look at it I mean you you make the point Ryan about uh, uh, the chairman uh, the former chairman now uh, Jerry Ball here's here's someone who has served On the commission under four governors. I mean, and it would appear, I mean, based on his comments, that. he believes that uh, much of what's gone on has really been uh, at a an issue on a couple of points. One, uh, who should be the executive director and the commission the commissioners. To this point, before these last changes, uh, the majority of them felt that Joel Kinsel should remain in that position. He was doing a good job. They they were uh, fully supportive. The other issue that uh, has been in play for a while is the fact that uh, uh, that the governor. Would like to see the um, uh, the various veterans' homes uh, privatized, and I mean, there's been this dis- ongoing discussion about that, and the commissioners, by and large, have been opposed to that. So, you know, there's there's clearly this um, this uh, kind of uh, loggerheads between the governor and, and the commissioners. Now he's appointed folks that uh, ostensibly we believe would, would be in favor of what he wants to see in terms of the direction and, and the, uh, 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 the specific uh, things that he's already outlined that he wants. And so we'll see how this continues. I think the bigger question in my mind, when you look at the organizations that are supposed to nominate five members Uh, present them to the governor. The governor then is to make a selection out of those five members. This appears to, you know, at least the conversation doesn't indicate that that's been followed uh, as as it has been outlined. The governor also appoints three at-large members, but I think we have to remember that all of these appointments are subject to Senate confirmation. So once again as we talked last week Mm -hmm. uh, with the education uh, uh, appointees that the governor has made I mean all of these folks still have to go through the process of being confirmed and in the instance of the Veterans Commission I mean we can look at uh, the statistics I mean how many uh, veterans in Oklahoma and how many homes if you look politically in Mm -hmm. campaigns oftentimes we'll look at the fact that when you think about uh, virtually every family in the state of Oklahoma has a veteran, some you know somewhere in their immediate family. So uh, the veterans have been very, uh, very interested, very vocal, and very involved. I mean, across the state, in these organizations, uh, whether it's the American Legion or the VFW or Paralyzed Veterans or uh, the Purple Heart Order of the Purple Heart, all of these uh, entities and others that uh, care about uh, the issues that are you know, front and center for veterans. I think this is going to be a discussion. We're going to see those folks at the Capitol and we're gonna see a lot of conversation about this. I don't think this is just uh, something that's been laid out there and one could assume is just going to take place without any, uh, without any interaction and without any comment from the public.
0: These veterans homes are incredibly important to the people that are there, for the mm-hmm. families of uh, the, the uh, veterans that are staying there. Um, and the conversation <clears throat> the conversation to privatize them, I think, predates Joel Kensel, the executive director, ever announcing for governor. In fact, I think that that's probably one of the reasons that Joel Kensel, a veteran himself, uh, said that he was going to enter the race because he felt that the state administration was not giving uh, its due to the veteran community in Oklahoma, and in particular with these veteran centers. And, you know, very concerned about the outcome of privatizing that. And you know, and rightly so. I mean, we look at ev- other efforts in the last uh, several years of privatizing or trying to outsource or contract essential state services. Well, they haven't gone all that well. Uh, and so this is a, a very vulnerable and an incredibly important community in, in, in Oklahoma. Um, you know, one of the things that came up early in the gubernatorial race, whenever there was talk of Joel Kensel getting in, I kept hearing, well, the veterans issue is going to be a big issue and it's a real liability for the governor. And, and in fact, his commission saved him from that. Uh, his commission saved him from that being a liability in the campaign, whether it was in the primary or the general, by refusing to move towards that privatization route. I think if his, if his commission did what this new commission is likely to do, because most of his agencies and commissions right now are, and boards are, are really just becoming rubber stamps. If they had done that and we'd seen a privatization and an, up, uh, and an, uh, like an, an, an upheaval in the veterans community and veterans homes in Oklahoma, that might have been a much bigger campaign issue. So these folks that he just fired actually saved him uh, from a big political liability uh, last fall.
2: Well, you know, one thing, too, when you have new commissioners new members c- come on these various boards and commissions across across the board uh, you you can assume that uh, many of those as they get involved as they get to know more of the information as they begin to uh, hear the arguments pro and con on any issue whether it's privatizing these seven veteran centers or something else that they may form their own opinions and they may coalesce uh, in a direction that's not necessarily the rubber stamp that you know on the surface it would appear One could argue might be the case based on the fact that the governor's appointees now are sitting in every single one of those uh, uh, every single one of those seats. So we'll see what happens. We'll see who becomes the chairman. We'll see kind of what the um, uh, what the tone of that uh, commission is and how much they're willing to really engage when when. The uh, controversy comes, if it does, particularly on the issue of veteran centers, which I think will be something lawmakers care about. It's certainly a big budget item. I mean, we're, we're seen as uh, as veterans, just as, uh, as seniors across the board in Oklahoma, all of the uh, issues that come into play with that in terms of uh, the uh, health care and all of the other things that are involved that have implications at the state level as well as at the national level, federal level, in terms of budget concerns and considerations. So uh, this is an issue that's important to Oklahomans, and I think uh, we'll watch it with interest and see what happens at the Capitol.
0: When I was in the House, I had the, the privilege and honor of serving as vice chair of the Veterans Affairs Committee in the House. Uh, the other thing about this, these are bipartisan issues. Uh, you know, it doesn't, your Republicans and Democrats both care about these veterans, they both care about their well being. And so you, you could see an alignment in the, in the legislature uh, around this as well.
2: Well, and many, many, many members of the legislature are veterans themselves. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you have a natural built in constituency right there of folks who have served and certainly will have empathy and great interest in what these uh, folks bring to the table in the discussion. Oklahoma's
1: congressional delegation is getting a huge boost in the new Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Tom Cole is taking over as chairman of the Rules Committee. Frank Lucas will head science, space, and technology. Stephanie Bice is joining Cole on the Appropriations Committee, the first time two Oklahomans have been on the powerful panel since 1990. Neva, what are your thoughts on these appointments?
2: Well, I think it's amazing. And I think it is something that uh, Oklahomans should be proud of. Uh, and it should be a, uh, something that uh, is bipartisan in, in tone in terms of people being proud of. I mean, we have a small delegation, five members in Congress, and yet the powerhouse in terms of the stature of the committees that they're on, the work that they will be able to do, uh, the fact that, uh, that they have risen to these places particularly in the chairmanships where i mean that wields a lot of power i mean that that's you're in the position to make sure things move or or things slow down based upon what you uh, what you feel is important in that particular committee work. And I think uh, it's certainly a boost for Oklahoma. I mean, in terms of uh, stature and growing seniority. And I think we saw that uh, not only uh, in recent weeks in the whole unfolding of the speakers, uh, the speakers race and what, uh, what happened and how many Oklahomans, and certainly these folks in our delegation, were front and center in uh, you know, lining up, making sure the votes happened for Speaker McCarthy and uh, as a result, I think they're in very, uh, very strong positions to have some real significant impact in this uh, in this upcoming Congress.
0: Right. I mean, two of those individuals, Congressman Cole and Congressman Lucas, they were talked about as potential uh, alternatives to now Speaker McCarthy. If you know he kept going on vote after vote after vote and not being able to get a majority, and they were thinking, well, who can get a majority? Uh, Tom Cole, Frank Lucas. Uh, you know, these these two individuals that have been in the House now for. 20 plus years in the state of Oklahoma, from the state of Oklahoma and have, you know, built relationships and in many instances, bipartisan relationships that have allowed them to maneuver and navigate successfully on behalf of the state of Oklahoma, regardless of the majority or minority status of their party in Congress. And I, I think that that speaks a lot to them. And if you look at it in the context of that, you know, McCarthy was ultimately elected speaker. I think that I said on the program that he wouldn't, but you know, you know, all of us <laughs> are wrong sometimes. Uh, but you know, that uh, if you look in that context, uh, Congressman Cole, Congressman Lucas, uh, Congresswoman uh, Bice, they were all uh, very much in support of, uh, of Speaker McCarthy, and that was never in any doubt. And so it's it's interesting that Oklahoma, this, this deep red, very conservative state, uh, has a congressional delegation with, with the exception, I think, of one with, with the fresh member, Josh Burkeen, all stood behind what could be seen as the moderate Republican choice in the house for the speakers race. Uh, and we're not, we're not going to be, um, you know, part of the more extreme, uh, far right, uh, Republican you know, caucus, m- mainly, you know, pretty new members in the, in the, in Congress. And that's where I, that's where even Congressman Cole in his extraordinarily powerful position as rules committee chairman that's where I, it'll be interesting to see how he um, uh, works with the concessions that the new speaker had to make in order to win uh, on one, one of those many, many votes down the road. He made several concessions to this far right group in the, in the house. Many had to do with, you know, amendments that were going to be made on, you know, whether, you know, you could have cuts with spending or spending without cuts. And, you know, the, the rules committee in that position as chair, Congressman Cole is going to be able to decide what bills hit the floor. Uh, when they hit the floor, how many amendments will go on it, what kind of amendments will be eligible for consideration on the floor. And I think that all of those may at some point trigger the concessions that the speaker made in order to win that race. And is that going to then tie the hands of Congressman Cole in that that position? I think that he's gonna have, uh, probably uh, among the leadership team, maybe the most difficult role in trying to navigate what those concessions were. But if anybody's up to that, I think that Congressman Cole probably is. I started
2: to say, I think uh, Congressman Cole, after 20 years plus in in Congress, certainly knows the ropes and knows how to navigate and be very skillful in terms of uh, uh, being able to chair that particular very powerful committee, the Rules Committee. I think also when you think about Stephanie Bice, uh, Congress, the congresswoman from uh, the, the Metro- metropolitan Oklahoma City area, and the Panhandle, and and the Panhandle, <laughs> but but but, but uh, is someone who's only in. Uh, her second term. I mean, and yet here she is landing a seat on the House Appropriations Committee. I mean, most people would think that would be virtually unheard of. So I think um, uh, when you look at her uh, path, I mean, she was was president of her freshman class coming into the Congress. She was a a strong ally and aligned with uh, Speaker McCarthy from the very beginning of her congressional Uh, Career. And so I think when you look at this, and the fact that uh, you made the point, Ryan, that this is only. uh, the second or the only the second time that uh, two Oklahomans have served you know in this in this capacity and when we think about when that first time was was a long time ago in 1990 and it was bipartisan you had Republican Mickey Edwards uh, and you had Democrat Wes Watkins serving at the same time on that committee so um, these are these are uh, important roles I think when you look at uh, someone like uh, congressman Lucas who again uh, two decades in Congress someone who has had Had an amazing career and. a significant impact, particularly as a chairman of, agri- of the Agriculture Committee uh, when he was chair, and the fact that he was uh, one of the key architects of crafting the uh, multi-year farm bill, and he's, he's a guy that uh, knows how to do the tough negotiations, just like Tom Cole and just like uh, some of the others that we've spoken about, and when you look at folks like, uh, you know, Kevin Hearn uh, from the 1st District, the Tulsa area, he will continue not only on the very prestigious Ways and Means Committee, uh, which again was a plum uh, 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 committee assignment that he received in his uh, in his first uh, uh, term, but he's also going to have a spotlight in terms of being the head of the Republican Study Committee, and that is a group uh, that really is a longstanding organization that helps to traditionally their their role is to help craft. Um, uh, balanced budget budget options and push for lower spending. Some of the issues that Republicans uh, want front and center in the conversation in those debates, and he will, you know, he will be a person who will have a will have a real voice in that process and something that he really cares about. In addition to um, uh, his. His real role in trying to uh, take a look at uh, tax policy and entitlement programs and really try to see some reform in those areas as well so uh, Josh Burkeen the freshman the the verdicts out I mean he came uh, he came uh, in that uh, in the in the speaker fight I mean he initially was uh, a vote not for speaker McCarthy ultimately did vote for Speaker McCarthy but uh, someone who uh, his alignment with the freedom caucus has uh, put him uh, you you know, at odds with some of the, you know, some of the the leadership and members. And we'll just have to see how he begins to... Um uh, kind of move through this process, see what assignments he ultimately gets, and he's got uh, certainly a learning curve in terms of just being the guy hitting the ground, newest member of the delegation, and a big district that he represents, and uh, we'll have to see how that unfolds during this session.
0: Now, if we could just get a couple of Democrats in our congregation, uh, uh, our probably, delegation, probably our no congregation, time soon. probably no uh, time soon. <laughs> we'll have power on both sides of the aisle. <laughs>
1: The new leader of the Oklahoma Tourism Department says the agency is suffering from a toxic environment. In a budget hearing before lawmakers, Director Shelley Zumwalt says the department also suffers from a lack of financial checks and balances while operating under a culture of silence and secrecy. Ryan, are you surprised to see such a frank analysis from the new tourism head?
0: Not at all. And and Shelley Zumwalt needs a vacation. I'm, I'm not saying that because I don't want her on the job, but she has, you know, with the Employment Commission and now over to tourism, you know, she has become the Swiss army knife of, of trying to fix and turn around these agencies. I think that her candor and transparency in front of the budget hearing and the legislature is welcome, especially given you know, the, the contrast. I was there last year when Jerry Winchester was testifying in front of that same committee, and it was very combative, and you, you saw a lot of the secrecy that she was talking about. And that was probably coming from the top. And whenever you poison that well with, with secrecy and fear and paranoia, uh, it's, it's really difficult to get over that. Uh, you know, as an employee, especially right now, whenever you have multiple investigations going on, you've got a new attorney general that may be, uh, uh, ramping back up the Swadley's investigation. Um, and I think that as an employee, you're looking around and you're saying, you know, how do, how do I cover myself in this? How do I make sure that I don't get implicated in this? Um, and that's not a healthy way to operate within a state agency. It's entirely understandable. You know, the state employees that are there, I, I, I have all the empathy in the world for how they feel and, and why they're feeling that way. Uh, but Shelly Zumwalt has a, uh, a real tall task ahead of her to try to Set a new tone within that agency, and you know, hopefully, the legislature will will partner with her in, in making that happen. Neva,
2: well, it's interesting. I mean, you're right, Ryan. I mean, she came into this new this position, her newest position, uh, with tourism back in October, and she made a point to the lawmakers. She said basically that uh, she had been, her words, unpleasantly surprised almost every day she's been on the job there. And I mean, so she came into a very difficult situation. I mean, you had the former tourism director resigning. The criminal investigation uh, into all of the questionable contracts with Swadleys, whether or not uh, uh, there were um, contracts, how they'd been approved, whether some of the uh, contracts were for too much money, purchases, and other things—a lot of things still kind of lingering out there. How those will be dispatched? I mean, who knows at this point? It hasn't really uh, hasn't really been said. But I think you know her points to the lawmakers. I mean, she made some she made some things that would make people. People sit up and and pay attention. She talked about the fact that they didn't have a a full-time budget analyst. She she talked about the the, uh, severe uh, turnover in staff, something that is a issue both in government and in the private sector. I mean we hear that every day. Um, And then the issues that you just raised, I mean about this kind of culture of secrecy and silence and and just the atmosphere being so toxic. But at the end of all of that, you still have to figure out how to make the agency work, and you still have to put people in place that can get the job done, that can un, can ferret through the uh, the maze of issues and problems and get some resolution. Not only not only from the agency perspective, but to the satisfaction of lawmakers who are going to appropriate the dollars for this agency. And we already know the discussion of the, the bills that have been pre-filed that want uh, the governor's control of of uh, this particular commission stripped back, uh, that uh, uh, this is just one of many of those conversations that will go on. But I think in these early budget hearings, we're hearing more and more of this kind of conversation. I mean, from these folks at the helm saying, hey, we've got lots of problems and you guys are going to have to uh, uh, get in there and help us uh, help us sort through it. It can't be everyone in their own silo coming, you know, kind of coming one by one and hoping to get a good result. So, uh, Shelly Zumwald is, you know, someone in a decade plus in, in state government certainly has learned the ropes, working, you know, kind of up the ladder. Uh, the governor clearly has a lot of confidence in her. Uh, certainly, even Lieutenant Governor Matt Pannell made statements that indicated that he was uh, showing confidence in the uh, ability of this particular team to start to get things done. Um, how, that, how that unfolds with the backdrop potentially of uh, some of these criminal investigations uh, ramping back up, that will no doubt have, uh, have uh, some impact. I mean, I think uh, in terms of not only the atmosphere, but in terms of potentially some of the revelations.
0: Well, it turns out that having somebody with state government experience is important uh, in these. And, and you know, not, we've talked a lot about the independence of, of boards and, and commissions that, that help oversee these agencies and how that's been eroded away over the last several years. There's also been this narrative that we have to bring people in from the outside, that, you know, private sector uh, operators that have tremendous success, uh, you know, managing equity firms or oil and gas operations, that they can immediately copy and paste that skill set into running a government uh, government agency and sometimes it works, Uh, and many times you find out that those same skill sets don't translate uh, entirely over there, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but they just don't. And so to bring in somebody that does have that decade plus long experience of state government to be able to fix this, uh, on the heels of somebody who came in and didn't have any experience in state government, I think speaks to the fact that it's important that we have state employees that we're able to recruit and retain and keep in these positions so that regardless of who is governor, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, or maybe one day an independent, uh, that, that, we, that we do have this continuity of, of uh, delivery of services in the state of Oklahoma that we can count on and, and have faith in.
1: Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.